0: Good evening. Thank you very much. Um, I'm John Hills from the Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion and the Department of so- Social Policy. Uh, the last time I chaired a lecture in this room a year ago, I was given a very careful half hour long briefing beforehand by the head of LSE Security on what to do if the meeting became unstructured. In other words, if disorder broke out. So, Mike, I know where to take you. I know where the safe room is where I can take you, um, where I can then take you by a sterile route to an exit route uh, where your fast car will be ready to take you yeah. away. I, um, that, that was chairing um, a, a, a discussion involving the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. Um, now, I am rather hoping that if you get upset by what Mike says in redefining what class you are a member of, um, you will be able to uh, make your um, feelings felt um, after Mike and Bev have spoken um, and that um, your comments will not become unstructured. Otherwise, I do know exactly what to do. Um, it's a huge pleasure um, and honour to have been asked to to chair this. Um, I hope, as, as Craig just said, that this is the precursor to an era of uh, more cooperation between not just sociology and social policy but also other departments um, but it's really a huge pleasure to officially welcome um, Mike to LSE just a year late um, after you arrived uh, what we're going to do is that Mike is going to give, deliver his lecture um, that'll be about 45 minutes or so, I'll then invite um, Bev to respond, I'll introduce Bev a little more at that point um, we'll then have time for um, general discussion, um, bring things to an end somewhere. It'll be before eight o'clock. Um, it won't be before quarter to eight, um, but depending on how things are going at that point. Now, as I, I'm sure many of you know, Mike was previously at York University. Before that, he was for a quite a long period at uh, University of Manchester. Um, we're delighted to have lured him from both of those. Um, at Manchester, he was um, director of the ESR, founding director of the SRC um, Centre research on sociocultural change. Uh, he has many distinctions, um, a fellow of the British um, Academy, his PhD from Lancaster, um, and of course is now um, head of the, uh, the social sociology department here. Um, he has a whole series of books whose titles um, run through quite how broad his knowledge is Uh, the dynamics of working class politics property bureaucracy and culture gender careers and organisation class analysis and social transformation identities and social change class culture um, and uh, uh, distinction uh, globalisation and belonging and others besides which seem to me to cover pretty well the whole waterfront Um, but I think probably Mike is now um, uh, best known um, beyond um, academic Sociology, for his contribution to the Great British Class Survey, which was launched earlier this year, um, and some of you may have filled in the little questionnaire um, on- online with the BBC, um, where you can find out um, quite how elite or non-elite you are, um, according to that. Um, it's a great honour to have been asked to, ask to Chair Mike, delivering um, his inaugural lecture tonight on the old, new politics of class.
1: Thank you for that very uh, generous introduction, and it's a great privilege to be here reflecting upon the old new politics of class. Because um, I'm interested in reflecting upon the tensions of the new, but also putting it in the context of older debates about class. And what I want to try and do today is give you a Cook's tour. Around these two projects which I've been involved with, I hope to show you that I like working on the tensions between different methodologies, different theoretical frameworks and different kinds of intervention around class. And as John was saying, since April the 3rd, I've been sort of overwhelmed really by the Great British Class Survey and how that caught the public imagination, often in ways which were unusual, strange, times unsettling, but which I think are very profoundly interesting for understanding the significance of class. And it's worth saying at the outset that 10, 15 years ago, we were told by legions of social theorists and journalists that class was dead. Uh, And the Great British Class Survey proved, with 7 million people clicking to see which class they're in, that class is actually very much a live issue. Uh, But an issue which I want to try and show is extremely difficult to pin down and raises fundamental issues about um, reflexivity uh, and the restructuring and remaking. Of formative inequality today. I want to say at the beginning that although I'm giving this lecture, I'm all too aware that I'm building upon scholarship of numerous colleagues and collaborators, some of whom are here in this room, and I'm very pleased to welcome them here, others of them aren't. From the universities of Manchester, York, Bergen, Paris, City, um, I think that's all. Um, so it's a fact, and I'm very proud, in a sense, to be involved with such collaborators. The BBC didn't, get, didn't give any money to this work. We, in a sense, assembled ourselves out of interest in the, in the work and the ideas and uh, it's been a great collaboration with more to follow I hope. But I also want to argue and show that we shouldn't get too fixated simply upon media savvy and media intense stories like the GBCS. I want to talk a bit too about something called the, the British, British Cohort Study, 1958, the National Child Development Study when I was involved in a smaller team of Jane Elliott from the Institute of Education, Andrew Miles, who's in the room, and Sam Parsons, where he did some interviews with a small subsample of 50-year-olds and asked them about their identities, um, their life trajectories, their life histories. And I want to try and play off these two sources to explore the meaning of class today. And I want to first show you a slide which was um, shown to our respondents as part of this NCDS study and I'm going to return to this at the end of my talk but I wanted to show it to you now to ask you to have a look at it and ask yourself a question which class which, if you had to represent your life through a diagram which diagram would you choose and I'm going to try and argue at the end that I will predict which of those diagrams you choose um, and explain why you've chosen it so this is to show sociology is a pred- predictive science after all um, Time is short. I'll try and say a few words at the beginning about the whole of class politics and make some provocative comments about where we're at um, and in particular argue that the British obsession with what I'm going to call the problematic of the proletariat has run its course and we need to think about new forms of class politics particularly around the issue of exposing elite power and privilege to view. Uh, and that will be my main focus. We need to kind of move away from traditional long-standing concerns about the boundaries between middle and working class, which is a debate which sociologists have had for many decades and argue we need to have a new way of thinking about the nature of class today. And then I'm briefly going to say a few words about the Great British Class Survey. It's very difficult to do that because, of course, it's in the public realm and so many people have commented on it and criticised it and attacked the, uh, the silly sociologists who developed it. So i want to try and say a few words in defence and argue that actually... It is really interesting to think about who did it and why they did it, Um, and that tells us very interesting things about the culture of who is interested in class today, and also about the the way in which certain kinds of social groups, particularly elite ones, are fascinated by the whole project of research and understanding society. And then I want to briefly, very briefly, show how we can use some of the data from the GBCS to dissect this powerful corporate elite which has a very strong powerful and pervasive presence in British society however I don't want to spend all my time talking about that and I will then move to talking about the interviews we conducted as part of the NCDS study and talk about the meaning of class and in particular contrast the way in which people who are advantaged talk about class compared to those who are disadvantaged so a lot to do Um, Let me begin very quickly. We're here at the LSE, so I thought we should begin with T.H. Marshall, um, eminent professor of sociology at the LSE, one of the most famous essays ever written, um, Citizenship and Social Class, which is kind of a a foundational text for understanding social class. And if you read this essay, and everyone does read it to see what he says about citizenship, um, people tend to skate over the first ten pages of this text but actually the first ten pages give you a sense of the genealogy of his arguments and it's a debate with an economist called Alfred Marshall and the issue which T.H. Marshall poses is not whether all men will be equal but whether, that, whether, whether progress will allow every man to be a gentleman and that is a really important way of framing debates about class it's been profoundly important and this second paragraph in the italics I think is very interesting because in it, T.H. Marshall begins with the idea of the gentleman. And then he says, well, the gentleman can be replaced by the word civilised, which, of course, is a very loaded term, to say the least. Um, he then makes a claim that civilization involves a claim to the sh- share in the social heritage. And finally, that in turn means a claim to be accepted As a full member of society, that is a citizen's. What Marshall is doing here, very powerfully, is arguing that citizenship is about becoming a kind of gentleman. And the issue for Marshall's problematic, Fabian problematic, is how the working class can be admitted as citizens and be civilised. So it's a a paternalistic, um, ultimately Edwardian, Victorian view of how we, the educated gentlemen, deal with the emerging working class. Very different from the thought of the Marxist historian E.P. Thompson, wrote a few years later. And Thompson argues the complete opposite, of course, to T.H. Marshall. For E.P. E. Thompson, the working class didn't need educating by the gents. They were the ones who were, in Thompson's phrase, bearers of the liberty tree. The, they were the Democrats. They were the civilised people who were nurturing radical traditions. The gentlemen were the ones who were corrupt who are looking after their own interests and fundamentally protecting their privileges. And of course this debate between Thompson the Marxist, if you like, Marshall the Fabian, has numerous dimensions, history versus sociology, uh, Yorkshire, because Thompson, absolutely clear he's writing his book from the Department of Adult Education, University of Leeds, as against T. H. Uh, Marshall giving the view from the London School of Economics. Um, and it's about the whole way in which the different classes have different moral values. And this shapes British debates about class ever since. It shapes what David Lockwood calls the problematic of the proletariat. That is to say, the fundamental question for the sociology of class has been what are the dividing lines between the classes, and in particular between middle and working class? And that raises issues about how you group occupations, people, are the working class in the majority? Have bits of the working class been bought out by capitalism? Are the middle classes, do they have radical potential? Are they fundamentally conservative? Um, and here's Pierre Bourdieu um, commenting upon where this objectivist view of class leaves you. It leaves you to debates about how you classify groups um, and in particular how you line people up in terms of this fundamental divide between middle and working class. And that debate has played out in British sociology for for decades, and it is still very present today. And I want to basically argue that we need to kind of, not entirely neglect this issue, but see it really as much less important than other ways of thinking about class, which particularly focus on the outliers, the people at the top of society and at the bottom. And that's a more fertile way of understanding the dynamics of class society today. And let me just show you two slides to make the point. I could show you lots of slides, but I just want to show you um, a, a, a figure indicating the relationship between occupational class 30 years ago, in the early years of the Thatcher government, and political affiliation, and then compare it with the same graph two years ago. And the key columns look at here is identification of the Labour Party. So 30 years ago, you can see very clearly that if you compare the proportion of skilled manual and semi- and unskilled manual workers who who identify with labour, over 50%. Compared to managers and owners, around 20%. There's a very, very clear class division here. Politics, at this point, is around a fundamental class cleavage, which, of course, is manifested and articulated to the labour movement and to all kinds of institutional (coughs) political forms. Now, like it or not, and however important this legacy is, and it's, its legacy which is fundamentally shaped my own work in the past, we have to look at the same figures today or two years ago, and if you particularly look at the, the column for Labour Party identification, you will see that there is virtually no difference anymore in the proportion of skilled manual workers who identify as Labour Party and professionals who identify as the Labour Party. It's around 40%. Managers a bit less, but there's really a very small class gradient here. And I think what this tells us is that we have moved beyond that fundamental division between middle and working class as a stratifying <coughs> feature in our political landscape. And I think to claim that you know, if Ed Miliband moves the Labour Party to the left, things might change, or if a certain situation arose, this might be different, is not recognising the fun- more fundamental nature of this shift, that the whole institutional structure of class and politics has been redefined, like it or not. Where does that leave us? It doesn't mean we should stop thinking about class. It means we need to think about class in other sorts of ways. And that's where I want to go on to the Great British Class Survey um, and talk you through... I mean, it's a a massive project in some ways. Um, It's an unwieldy project. I'm just going to talk you through a few of the issues. Um, But I really want to bring in uh, Pierre Bourdieu-Bourdieu, Bourdieu is someone people hate or love. Um, ma- we have been massively criticised for bringing him into the debates by some uh, British class theorists. And I know why would we bring a French person in, talk about class in Britain. Um, but he does one fundamental thing, which allows us, I think, to think about this issue of class in a different way to that which we saw in the problematic of the proletariat. And the issue which he poses is that rather than attribute classes having ontological substantialist properties, he emphasises the role of capitals, economic, social, and cultural. And for him, each of these capitals um, has its own way of accumulating advantage, storing advantage, transmitting advantage, and cross-fertilising advantage. So the mechanisms now which produce inequality are much more complex, more, there are more of them, and you should not, in Bourdieu's thinking, assume that classes are kind of objects or things. A very similar point in some respects to that which Edward Thompson also made in The Making of the English Working Class. He also fundamentally brings culture and symbolic domination into the view of class analysis and um, I want to try and show in my remaining 25 minutes or so this is a really fundamental shift which we should, should absolutely put at the heart of our analysis. Now, I'm not going to go through the seven classes. You know, you've done the calculator or not, and you're fed up with it. And no, one, no one likes the class they've been put into. That's a point I'm going to return to. Um, what I've done here is I've simply briefly, on the left-hand side, indicated the variables we used to construct this latent class analysis. And what this latent class analysis does is it takes measures of the three capitals and it looks at the combination of those capitals, the ways in which they could be seen to crystallise, people into classes defined by particular combinations of those capitals and I've, I'm not going to go into details this is the ranking or this is the rank ordering of these seven classes according to these seven variables three variables for economic capital income savings and house value two variables for social capital to do with the people you know and two variables for cultural capital highbrow cultural capital This is in the Bordiotian sense, whether you like going to opera, art galleries, museums. Also something which we call emerging cultural capital, which I'll return to, which is associated with young people and um, involves interest in uh, contemporary music, um, the internet, social networking, keep fit and so forth. I'm going to come back to the issue of emerging cultural capital in a minute, because for me new forms of cultural capital and the way they, they jostle with older forms is fundamental to the the remaking of class. The point I want to make is this. If you look at the ranking orderings of these seven classes, and if you look in the middle ranks, if you try and look at the difference between the new after-workers and the technical middle class, you can see the ranking ranking orderings vary a lot. So the technical middle class, class four, if you like, gets the highest score for social contact, that is to say the status of the people you know, and the lowest score for the number of people you know and you can identify. The point is, in the middle, it's a bit fuzzy, actually how you divide these classes up even though the middle of the class structure has been the fundamental dividing line in much British thinking about class the boundaries between middle and working class is seen to rest somewhere in the middle of the class structure and Marxist wanted to argue that the working class is bigger and so on and so forth in the middle it is all a bit fuzzy but if you look at the elite class on the left hand side and the precariat on the right hand side you see by contrast a very clear ranking so the elite is the wealthiest class by some margin, it also has high social capital and high, high highbrow cultural capital. The precariat comes bottom, or next to bottom, on every measure. So there's a debate, as many of you know in social science, about outliers and the way in which we should be looking, not necessarily at the central means, but actually at the outliers, and they are the most important. And arguably, if we're thinking about a class analysis fit for contemporary purposes... That would suggest we need to look at the top and the bottom. And it's that idea I want to pursue. Um, and you can obviously break these classes down by age. The elite is the oldest class. Average age of 57, according to our analysis. Um, the emerging service workers are much younger. That's partly to do with the way in which they score high on emerging cultural capital, which predominantly belongs to young people. The elite class has the smallest proportion of ethnic minorities, so it is overwhelmingly white, 96% white. Um, and gender split is, is equal, and as you can see, some differences in the classes according to um, the proportion of male and female. All these figures, I should say, come from the small national sample, which we did alongside the large web sample. Um, so. That gives us some benchmarks, and it suggests that actually we should be thinking about a class analysis which is quite focused upon what's happening at the extremes, and also, I want to argue, particularly at the top. And we need a class analysis which recognises this power of elite privilege. And actually, here, the web survey is a remarkable resource, because the web survey is overwhelmingly filled in by people who are well-educated in high-level occupations, and we can use it to analyse it. We can also use it to address the issue about what kind of people are interested in class enough to do a 20-minute BBC online web survey. Um, Again, I want to get away from the idea that because it's not not representative, we can't use it. Actually, we can use it if we use it almost ethnographically as a kind of study of who does and who doesn't get interested in these sorts of little quizzes devised by so-called boffins. Um... And it's very revealing. So here's a map showing the geography of who did this web survey, 161,000 respondents. And you can see the colours in red and yellow um, are the areas where the respondents are overrepresented. And it's a very clear map of the south of England. And it's a very clear map of central London. And it shows a metropolitan bias to which I will return, underscoring the way in which this kind of project appealed to metropolitan home counties, England. One of the really interesting things is you can use this survey too to look at the timing when people did this survey, when they went online and clicked and did the survey. And the survey was launched in January 2011 when I appeared on the one show and had to explain why the Great British public should be bothered to do this survey. And amazingly enough, 100,000 people did it in the first... Three months. It was also massively exposed on BBC Radio and across all their news media. And you can see that after after February, the numbers dropped off. A few hundred people did it every month after that. If you go to the right hand side of the graph, April 2013, um, the results are announced by the BBC, a huge news campaign. And the really interesting point to me is that led to another huge wave of people who did not the class calculator, not the thing you did on the BBC website but the web survey beneath it. Now the interesting thing there is actually this was not massively publicised and you have to do a bit of experimental work to to get to that web survey again. So people are really quite committed to doing this kind of work. There's a reflexivity here that I'm I'm pointing to that actually this experiment um, wasn't just done and then reported. It was done, reported and then created another huge wave of people who did it again. The result is we have another sample of around 200,000 people who've arrived on our desk a few weeks ago. And the really interesting thing about who these people are is that the second wave of people who did it in the immediate aftermath of the BBC news story are even more elite (laughs) than the first wave of people were. So even in the first wave of people, you can see in our elite class, this is people with lots of cultural capital, economic capital, social capital, about 6%, 7% of the population, 22% of the people who did it in January 2011, in April 2013, that went up even more. This is really interesting, actually, because the conventional culture of the gentleman in Britain was that you don't talk about class. If you, you know, in the old traditional aristocratic formation, polite people thought class was vulgar. If you talked about class, if you're kind of if you a trade or if you're upperly mobile or something, um, what this interesting, I think, slide is, is showing today, actually, if you're elite, you actually quite like talking about class. You actually want to do web surveys about it. Um, And actually that process of ever more exclusive responses goes on the more publicised the results and the research gets. Where does this lead to? Well, it leads us back to Pierre Bourdieu um, and his argument about the social space and the genesis of groups and the interesting categorisation. And I want to say a bit about this. This is very important because clearly with the release of the of this story, where we were involved in categorisations of various kinds, not just academic categorisations, but as Bourdieu observes, these go out there. And they go into the public realm, they get reported, and they have effects, if you like. They, are, they help construct certain kinds of social groups and social identities, in ways which, through our naivety, I don't think we recognise what happened, but they sort of have happened. And I, I want to say a few words about those identities, in, in terms of exploring what this... Project tells us about a culture of class in Britain today. And I made the point earlier that when we were analysing um, cultural capital, we argued there was a form of emerging cultural capital, which is a kind of ironic cultural capital. So for Bourdieu, the focus is upon people who go to high culture, legitimate high culture, established culture, art galleries, museums, like in the opera. Whereas emerging cultural capital is what we call a kind of knowing mode of cultural capital. It's to say you know the codes. And by knowing the codes, you can then kind of defy them or kind of rework them and show your distinctiveness in terms of the form in which you appreciate things. And so we have the the famous um, sketch of John Cleese, which was massively used by the BBC to promote the story. And that was satirised, not only to show the Conservative Party and David Cameron... Um, articulating the class structure but also probably dogs do that um, according to one, one blog uh, and then this, this slide on the, on the bottom right is I think very interesting because if you read the different questions you could tick these are very knowing questions Okay, the people the specific things being asked there <laughs> nodding earnestly at Owen Jones' tweets I mean for that to be salient you have to be part of the intelligentsia or pick a kind of intelligentsia um, saying it's even better than The Wire. I mean, The Wire, as some people in the audience know, is kind of cult, intellectual programme. I mean, these would mean nothing to most people, but they do mean something, in a kind of satirical way, to certain constituency. What is going on here is the performance of a certain kind of cultural capital. And that, you know, takes on a, you know, some striking forms. One of the things which really amazed us in the aftermath of the BBC story was the formation of the Emergent Service Workers Party <laughs> um, which was a group initiated by the space hijackers who protested against the Olympic Games and other things um, and what's interesting about them is actually they were absolutely clear they were being ironic they didn't really think they were emergent service workers yeah, they, they recognised in kind of Bourdieu's terms that this is a label which had been invented so I'm happy I've now a suitably tongue-in-cheek flag to wave and they were very clear that the reason they liked the e SWP was to to parody the Socialist Worker Party. So this is is fundamentally a politics of irony and fundamentally trying to mock established political forms and in the process display a certain kind of cultural distinction. So without realising it, our study got caught up in this sort of way in which you can define yourself and differentiate yourself from other kinds of people with cultural capital. Um, And as you can see, the the emergency service workers, I want to show you this slide... They are an interesting group, I think, because on the rank values, you can see they score highest on emerging cultural capital but amongst the lowest on economic capital. And this obviously caught the imaginations of young, unemployed, semi-employed university graduates who thought they are not represented by the current political parties. I mean, there is a genuine issue here. There are, what the, the interest, I think, in this story does testify to the fact that people don't feel that the, the existing structures allow a way of representing themselves. But it's also the case that some of the, some of the, of the satir, satir, satirical takes were much more problematic, you might say, condescending um, towards uh, the lower social orders or whatever to called. Imogen Taylor has written a very interesting book about abjection and how the culture of abjection operates in British society and how that works through um, problematising categories at the bottom, stigmatising them. and. Overemphasising certain characteristics. And so here, for instance, the class calculator is used to define the total fucking scumbag class, which isn't massively different from the chav class, and you can see a much more problematic politics going on with this kind of work. Well, I mean, I think we would say in our defence, possibly one of the the best achievements of the the public part of this work was the fact that we didn't use the underclass label. um, And by using the precariat label, however problematically, we did at least try and move the debates about what was going on at the bottom end of society onto a different kind of terrain. So overtly, we weren't interested in that, but nonetheless, the work got appropriated to this kind of discourse. Okay, um, so we, are, we ourselves got caught up in this politics of classification, and that's quite telling. The issue for us, I think, is not just to step back from that, say we shouldn't be doing it, we should be sitting, sitting at our desks, Reading our books, and not getting involved in these things. I think as social scientists, we do have to get involved in that work, actually, because it's happening. We are being categorised, like it or not. And for me, what we need to do is do that in a way which is most likely to be uh, productive and progressive. And that's why I think we can use this survey to talk about the elite, which is a group which, in Britain, we don't have—we don't actually know much about. Some nations have very rich data sources on elites. We don't really have that in the UK. Because of the sample skew, we can actually say some quite striking things about this group. And here's a few examples, um, all taken from the web survey. These are the occupational groups who are most overrepresented in the elite class. This elite class is, again, just to remind you, people with lots of money, also lots of social capital, and lots of cultural capital, but they are defined fundamentally by having a huge amount of, of economic capital. That's what differentiates them. Overwhelmingly, it's a business managerial class, chief executive officers, management consultants, financial managers, marketing sales managers, HR managers. These are the groups who are most overrepresented. It's not the traditionally gentlemanly upper class British style. Okay? I think that is an important lesson to get over in terms of the kind of group we are talking about. is fundamentally a metropolitan class, a London-based Class, with the exception of two areas of Yorkshire which I have squeezed squeeze in there um, it's fundamentally in the south and west of, west of London and based around the home counties now to some extent that's an artefact of the variables we use because we use variables about house price which we all know to be higher in London than the southeast. but actually you can go beyond that and you can say well, let's just take the measures of cultural capital and see how um, distributed they are and here's a very interesting story to tell I think. The left-hand map indicates the spatial distribution of elites with high amount of high cultural capital, in Bourdieus terms highbrow cultural capital, liking going to museums, art galleries. That as you can see, very little red and blue. That's basically the same throughout the whole UK. Elites everywhere like doing those things. There's no skew to that. There's no distinctive mapping. If you turn to the emerging cultural capital, it is the ironic, knowing mode of cultural capital, ability to it's become in social media, you can see absolutely, again, we see the skew around London and the southeast. So again, the metropolis, the, the metropolis comes out as very distinctive in terms of this, this particular feature, this particular kind of capital. That's true also with social networks. Um, if you look at the left-hand graph, the red colour here indicates the areas where the elite know people of a higher status – So it's where the the status scores of the people they know are particularly high. Again, with the exception of parts of Glasgow, which is a bit strange perhaps, surprising. It's predominantly around London and the southeast. So the elites in London are well-networked amongst other high status people. But if you look at the right-hand graph, which is indicating how many occupational groups you know, it's it's the other way around. I.e., elites in London don't have a huge social range. They don't mix with a huge range of occupational groups, but they do mix with a select group of high status occupations. So it's a kind of relatively closed elite. And then you can um, mine down and look at things like what proportion of graduates from different universities, the size of this, of this sample allows us to um, mine down to this level. This is not I should say this is, this is preliminary data. It's not quite fully cleaned yet, so please do not quote these figures as any kind of exact figures. But for me, this is very interesting. If you look at um, the proportion of graduates from different universities who end up in our elite class, and bear in mind our definition of the elite, you can see that there's quite... I think what's interesting to me is that slope is quite steep. So I, I, it's not as if all Russell Group universities are in the same boat. It's definitely not a kind of Russell Group effect here. There's actually a quite clear hierarchy in which Oxford is clearly at the top, but Cambridge, interestingly, it's not Oxbridge. Cambridge is fourth. There are two London universities, including LSE, in, in, in the middle. Um, Bristol, Imperial, UCL. It's not until Durham that you get a university outside the south of England who scores there. So this, again, is testifying to the power of the metropolitan effect. And you can explore that too. Um, as you can see, I love these figures and maps. And it's all a bit uh, quick and descriptive. But I think it's, it tells its own story. This is a map of Oxford graduates and where they're now living. Um, what does it tell us? It tells us actually a lot of them end up in London and the southeast. Actually, quite a few don't. I mean, Oxford graduates, of course, traditionally went out and governed the empire or whatever. And so now, they are now governing bits, of, governing bits of northwest England and Scotland, <laughs> um, northeast England. So actually, there's a reasonable spread here. Uh, but if you contrast it with Cambridge... It's an interesting difference. Um, Cambridge graduates much more likely to end up in London and the South East and much less likely to go to the provinces. Interesting difference. don't know why that is, but there are some very interesting microgeographers geographies which this data can tell us about these different kinds of elite universities. The LSE um, <laughs> tells us that if you go to the LSE, the chances of you ever leaving London are not great. Um, and indeed, as you can tell from the map of London chance of lean Bloomsbury, for you, tremendously great, <laughs> because the heat bubble is all around central London. Um, so what does this tell us? It tells us if you went to an elite university in London, you stay there, in this kind of vortex, in, in this metrop- metropolis, where elite formation is happening. If you go to an elite university from outside London, then a significant number of graduates end up moving to the metropolis. There's a very powerful kind of vortex, institutional vortex involved here. King's College London is the same as the LSE, so again, if you go to King's College London, you don't leave. Just for Bev, goldsmiths. Um, actually, goldsmiths is the most metropolitan of all. If you if you get go a goldsmiths, hardly any graduates leave London there. But East London, rather than Central London. So again, interesting issues around the the microgeographers of different universities. Um, compare that with York University. And interesting pattern here, York, you know, is a, is, a, is one of the top ten universities in the UK. Very good reputation as you can see from the colour of London, a lot of the York University graduates end up in the south of England. So this is my point. The London effect is hugely important and it overlaps with different kinds of university institutions. This is all saying, Manchester, Manchester is interesting because Manchester is one with, um, where a lot of the graduates do stay in the north of England. Okay, so what I think we can use this data to tell us about is the way in which there is this very voracious and reflexive corporate elite. Um, and we don't have many data sources to unravel that. Um, it's interested in cultural distinction, taking not just traditional highbrow forms, but also emerging forms, and it is fundamentally a much metropolitan formation. Um, and that raises the issue. So, you can see my point. This elite class is also interested in things like the GBCS, and it helps create a kind of voracious interest in itself, which then generates these kinds of methodological innovations. So within this, how are other voices heard? And this is where I want to turn to my other project briefly. I've got 10 minutes left, hopefully, to kind of give you the contrast because there is a danger that we get, or certainly I get, so wrapped up in these kind of graphics and things that you lose sight of what is being left out of these things. And I want to finish really by briefly telling you some stories from this British birth cohort study. This is a representative survey, so now we can get the voices of a range of people, different parts of the social structure. And I think it tells us some very revealing things about class domination and class identities in Britain today. I want to go back to this diagram I showed you at the start to start with. Um, If you had to represent your life through a diagram, which of these would it be? Now, I'm going to guess that um, most of you I'm not going to ask for hands up, because I could be wrong, but um, most of you would have chosen number three, which is the one with the staircase, or possibly number seven, or occasionally perhaps number number seven is the one with a kind of snake with the head pointing up at the end. Very few of you, I, I will wager, have chosen any of the straight lines. No one's shouting me down, so I'll take that as a yes. Um, why? For the, exactly the same reasons as we saw with the fuss about the, the, the GBCS, people don't like to identify themselves as categories of the kind which could be represented by a straight line. So if you were to see your life as a straight line, you're basically saying, I'm just a kind of cipher of a social group or a social trajectory. The minute you can inject your life with steps, you can populate your life story with things which happen to you, which make you different from the categories. So, you know, you were made unemployed, you got a new job, you... Um, you met the love of your life. All these things can be used to give yourself steps in a staircase. Um, and that's important, because this is the way in which elite classes uh, and the dominant classes, if you want to use that phrase, talk about their lives. And Andy Miles is in the audience. He and I, and Felix Bullman, who's not here today, wrote this article together on this issue. but we, 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 we picked out the interviews from the NCDS, which were the most elite and the most happily mobile people. And he's, he's all 50-year-olds, years old, 50 year olds, so it's a particular cohort, and um, this guy is one of the most successful commas, in the entire sample. He is now a senior partner, I think, in a law firm. When you read that account, you'll see what he's trying to emphasise is his modesty, that he, didn't, he wasn't born to be a great lawyer, it just was. It wasn't that uncommon in those days to get a uh, to, to get a job as assistant within three years, or sorry, to be offered a partnership within three years. Uh, in those days, that wasn't particularly meteoric. Emphasising, you know, I was just you know, ordinary, ordinary person. Then, about 2001, I got the chance to become a, a part-time uh, a partner, i.e., not, not that he actually pushed for it; it just happened. Happened to him. Now, what? This is, this is a very characteristic way in which these people talk about life, and it's, this is a very kind of elite refrain, actually, you know, I'm not sure about my life, I'd be very lucky. Another way of doing it by this guy here was to say, well, my work life has been a success, but other parts of my life have not been. So in this person's case, he recognises occupationally, he's been very upwardly mobile, but then he balances that by saying he hasn't got a happy marriage with kids, he hasn't got a family life, he's living by himself. Now, I will... I will wager almost that you know this is the very common motif which we all use when we talk about our lives. If you know, if are part of the elite or upper classes or middle classes, it's the way in which you deport yourself. And what's going on here is a deliberate interest in refusing the gentlemanly story of you know I'm bound to be a certain class. If you and if you are interested in narrating this kind of more mobile class identity, things like the GBCS become entirely you know power to your, power to your elbow. Yeah, so this is this guy. Um, I'm still jealous of people that are earning a tenth of what I've got that are happily married. Now, my point, I mean, this is my last point, and I'll finish. What I've done recently in the last few months is I've tried to pull out of the, of this data uh, the most precarious of the interviewees, all oh, about 50 years old. This is the precarious, if you like. This is the people without cultural, economic, or social capital. And... Um, this table here indicates their jobs, their pay, their education and their housing tenure. What's interesting here, I think, is it does not conform, I mean, it's only 15 cases, it's not it's not representative sample, but it's, it's illustrative, indicative. Most of the people here have got jobs, and they're not part of a long-term, un, 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 underclass unemployed, not at all, they've all got jobs, with two exceptions, three exceptions. Um, most of them have got educational qualifications and most of them own their own houses or have got a mortgage. This is not conform to the kind of underclass motif. However, their net pay is very low. This is basically a group of poor people who are actually attached to the labor market and indeed the housing market and are reasonably well qualified. So, you know, we need to think of, about ways of understanding what's going on here, I think, without relying upon those kinds of motifs. What comes out very strongly when you read their interviews is how many of them... <coughs> tell a story about some personal trauma of their lives. Now, obviously, everyone does that to some extent. This is a very common theme in qualitative interviews. Um, Again, I got very interested in Imogen Imogen Tyler's recent book, uh, the whole way in which abjection is is used as a means of domination, and also how that that idea of abjection is taken up by people under disadvantaged positions. So it's something you feel that shame and that stigma if you are in these precarious positions. And this, again, is a very Baudiotian point. Um, But one of the interesting things is the way which, in the interviews, these respondents had a particular narrative strategy for dealing with this question, which was, to say, something along the lines of, in my life, there have been these deeply difficult issues. Unemployment is one of them. Actually, unemployment wasn't talked about as deeply shaming most of the time. Much more shaming was issues of dealing with criminality, and especially living in an area where... There was a reputation for high crime. But again, that was not so significant. It was the last two which were much more emphasised. The shame of not being able to work. And about, I think, four of these, four of these people had, had cancer. One more had a heart condition. Um, and this was seen to be a very stigmatising identity. And then also, perhaps the most powerfully of all, quite, many of them reported severe family abuse. Uh, relationship abuse, marriage breakups, uh, domestic violence, and such like. Uh, so, and this was, again, seemed to be deeply, deeply shameful, deeply stigmatising. The point here, therefore, is that these respondents at age 50 had constructed a narrative which recognised those abject issues but hadn't, had appropriated them into an account of their lives which were seen, they, they were seen to be in the past or kind of having been dealt with. There's a kind of reconciliation which they'd managed to achieve, possibly as a result of um, friends being supportive, new marriages, moving to a new area. So a recognition that they'd actually themselves moved out of a certain kind of abject position. And the important point here is that leads to a particular kind of class identity. These people, perhaps surprisingly, given the argument about people who were in dominant positions, in some ways didn't want to identify the working class, overwhelmingly were very clear that they were working class, or lowest class sometimes, um, why? Because in a way, if you've got other parts of your life up for grabs and uncertain, the one thing you don't want to have queried to is kind of the fact that your basic identity as an ordinary, down-to-earth, um, ordinary working-class person. So you can see that for people who have this way of constructing their lives, it makes sense to, to uh, claim a certain kind of working-class identity, which is not seen as stigmatised, actually. It's seen as a good identity to hold. Uh, and therefore, when something like the GBCS comes along, you would say, yeah, why, would you, why would you be interested in this? You wouldn't want to have things queried or uh, new, new models of class being put on the, on the agenda. You know from your own experience and your own way of articulating yourself what class you're in. So I think this, is a really, uh, this helps explain, if you like, the partial selective take-up of the survey and also the kind of complex cultural politics of class. And I want to finish, really. Um, I mean, I've covered a lot of ground, I think, but... A few conclusions. Um, The problematic of the proletariat, I think, has dominated us for a long time, worrying about whether we're middle or working class. I'm not sure that's the best way to to position ourselves these days. Actually, in many of the interviews, people talk about themselves as middle and working class, and it's not necessarily either or identities. Actually, I think what we should be doing is focusing upon outlying classes, particularly at the top, and that demands a new kind of critical research agenda. We need to understand, I think, what's going on at the top of society, not using conceptual frameworks which impose a certain notion of the upper class being old-fashioned gents. I don't think they are anymore. I think we're talking about a different kind of formation, a corporate um, formation attracted not just to traditional highbrow culture, but also to new and emerging forms of cultural capital. And those forms are still ones we don't understand very well. And finally, as I've tried to briefly show, and particularly by exploring the way in which the GBCS got caught up in these politics of classification, again, one of the results, one of the um, bits of feedback after the um, GBCS was that we had over culture, and actually class is fundamentally economic. Well, yes, of course, of course class is fundamentally economic, but actually the cultural aspects are, are, I think, crucial, absolutely crucial to understanding the, the, the politics at stake here. It's fundamentally about the way representations and categorizations are being used, Stigmatized, to to make claims about cultural distinction, which are important. But these claims, I've tried to argue, are much more complex these days and can't be easily captured by Bourdieu's notions of highbrow cultural capital alone. We need to have a, 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 an awareness of what's our, what I've called a knowing mode of cultural capital and an emerging form of cultural capital as well. And finally, uh, just to say, uh, to, to echo John, really, that I'm delighted that these debates hopefully will be taken up by a number of us in the LSE, um, working with him now and other people, other colleagues that we're meeting next week to think about how we take the interest forward. There was um, last year a strategic there was a strategic review going on in the LSE and that, that has asked all LSE colleagues to identify what it sees as the most pressing question which the LSE should be solving. And I think both John and I are sort of in some ways pleased and some other ways concerned that the number one choice was the issue of inequalities. So there's no doubt that as an institution we are very concerned to think about how we can develop a distinctive frame. So T.H. Marshall um, revisited, hopefully in a different kind of framework. Thank you.
0: Well, Mike, thank you very much indeed for delivering um, such a rich and also such an entertaining um, lecture. Um, we've now got about half an hour for, um, for discussion, um, and I'm delighted that that's going to be opened by Bev Skegs. Bev is a Professor of Sociology at Goldsmiths, as you've heard. She's just escaped from being Head of Department. I don't know whether that means that she managed to escape before she had to submit the REV submission or whether actually that's what she spent most of the last year doing. Um, She's just started an ESRC professorial fellowship um, looking at value and values. She's an academician of the Academy of Learned Societies of Social Sciences. Um, she's got honorary doc- doctorates from Aalborg from Stockholm, and from Teesside, your, your hometown. Um, and she's um, one of the managing editors of Sociological Review. So it's a huge pleasure to welcome you here from your normal haunt in East London, <laughs> according to Mike's Maps. Um, and really to start us off on, has Mike got it right?
2: Oh, well, I wasn't going to answer that. <laughs> oh, wow, well, well, okay. <laughs> uh, I was going to, because it's very difficult to respond to an inaugural, because inaugural a celebration of somebody arriving at a point, really. So I wanted to say, well done, LSE, really, to begin with, and kind of enjoy Mike. I want to thank Mike, to begin with, um, by keeping class on the agenda in sociology. Some of you may not know, but it was definitely um, a term that was very hard to keep on publisher agendas, on research council agendas, on anybody's agenda from the 1980s to the 1990s. And I think Mike's done incredibly important work just consistently ploughing on with all his studies on class very very important stuff and it's really really cheering to hear that the LSE are actually going to start working on inequalities I think that's absolutely brilliant um, I, when I first was asked to do this I thought Mike would be talking about methods because I think it's his methods work that's really really challenging uh, Mike is a historian by first degree um, and his work on methods always kind of pre-empts a lot of the stuff that does go on in sociology. So I would recommend the Identities and Social Change book, which is about class identities, interestingly, but does take an, a long historical picture and understanding of what's going on, very important. I'd also like to thank Mike, and it's gonna the sick of fancy will end soon, um, for, paying atten- for making the media pay attention to class. Um, in a way that they just could not avoid. And they couldn't resist, actually. They loved it. It was very, very interesting to see how much. And it kind of it fulfills Mike's argument here that the kind of elite BBC Radio 4 presenters just couldn't get enough of it. It was, it was incredible just listening to it for a, a week and thinking, wow, they really are... Um, they really are obsessed with that which they often refuse to name and do it in the name of taste. So I thought that was really interesting. I'd also like my final thank you is just to say thank you for all your energy in sociology more generally. Um, And it's been, you know, Mike has always created, I've worked with him before, has created lots of space for ideas. And I do believe Mike is a kind of genuine thinker. There was a moment when I was trying to force him to read Lauren Ballant and Gayatri Spivak. And he was one of the only people willing to do that surrounding me at the time. Um, And that was quite a long while ago. So again, thank you. But there's always got to be a but in a response, doesn't there? So the, the sick of fancy ends there. And what I want to say is I do think Mike's analysis of class, and he does recognise this in a title, is actually an analysis of stratification. And I think had he had more time, he would have gone into the kind of Marx-Faber debates. And I think the thing that Bourdieu does for us all who are studying class has really complicated the kind of Marx-Faber um, understanding of what class is. And I think I want to go back to the class analysis of Marx especially now in this present historical moment. And I want to stress, and this is where we differ, um, and Mike knows this, uh, I, want, I want to stress that I think class is about the relationship between capital and labour. It doesn't matter how many forms of uh, class that we kind of define through stratification, the ultimate relationship is the exploitation through labour. What we see at the moment is just forms of incredible exploitation, And people talk about a crisis in capitalism, but as we know from David Harvey, actually from Marx, but then David Harvey did it um, in great detail, is how these crises enable the wages of workers to be pushed down. They enable workers to be exploited more. What we see at the moment is the most incredible development of a global division of labour, whereby it is global workers who are holding down the wages of the developed south so when we talk about things like the elite i want to think about the global elite and it was fascinating i was only doing this this morning over breakfast and i was looking at who were the the 10 richest people in britain Um, and if you look they're all either russian ukrainian or indian until we get to the duke of westminster who owns london Um, so it's very interesting in the uk the elite really are not british If we look to the U.S., I thought, well, I'll just do a quick look and see who's in the U.S. Interestingly, the um, top, I think it's 15 in the U.S., are all American. So I think there's something interesting going on there in terms of the formation of global elites and the significance of national geography. The other thing that I think is very important about the relationship between capital and labour is that the capitalists who put into effect capital globally have always used the play of difference. They've always used race, they've always used class. The sexual division of labour has been used to push wages down. The racial division of labour has been used to set workers against each other. So I think we need to think about what the capitalists are doing rather than elite culture renaming itself and legitimating itself through classification. And what I've always argued really, really strongly, and especially when I wrote a book on the history of class, is that class is also a moral category. So we have the relationship between capital and labour, but what we also have is the naming of it, is constantly classification is a moral project. It's always a moral project. I challenge you, and if you can, I'd be very, very grateful, to come up with a better word for the elite or the upper class. Because elite and upper describe that which is meant to be better. Lower and under describe that which is meant not to be. It's a moral categorisation. And when we add gender to class or when we add race to class, what we see is a phenomenal kind of moral combination of classification. So I think it's very important that we think about morality when we think about class- class and we think about how the language of class is always spoken in moral terms. And this is why this is why. I think studies of stratification are powerful descriptions that are actually performative of the differences that they describe. I want to argue that they're ideological, because I think they put into effect the interests of those who, are, who have power and have interests. And I want to argue that those distinctions that are produced through stratification are arbitrary. And I mean arbitrary in that Ron saying it's not pointless arbitrary. Arbitrary in the sense that we could define those differences almost anywhere, but really, for me, what counts is capital and labour and the relationship between them. It's not those minute differences, as Bourdieu actually says about um, all the kind of differences in uh, French stratification theory. There's so many of them, we have to work out which ones count and which ones we know exercise power. So I think there's a challenge to kind of work out how we understand these forms of stratification alongside that which is both ideological, moral and performative. Now, Roncier, who I do particularly like and I do adore his critique of Bourdieu, um, he argues that class struggle itself, so if we're talking about a politics of class, class struggle is a struggle against classification. It's not, a, it's not an attempt to reproduce classification. It's not about fiddling with the categories. It's not about kind of doing uh, lots of different modelling and things like that. But it's actually an argument, and it is an attempt to get rid of being classified. Because the only people who benefit from classification are usually those who are doing it. The ones who experience the violence of classification are those who are positioned by it. And that's his argument, and I think that's very important. Um, And then I just kind of want to pick up on one thing that uh, Mike talks about, disidentification, since all my work's been about disidentification. Um, Now, disidentification from the category class, Um, and I looked at this through a very particular gendered um, analysis it is working-class women who predominantly disidentify from the category of working-class because to be a working-class woman is to be uh, attributed with a lack of value. It is to be seen to be excessive, fecund, loud, vulgar, all that value-laden, immoral um, Values that are carried in that word. So for me, disidentification is precisely about what Mike ended on. It's about how representations carry values that are about lack, deficiency and pathology. And I think if you're offered the category, say I was offered the category of working class woman to identify with, I wouldn't want it because it would be saying I am that sort of person. So disidentification works through very particular raced, classed, um, gendered um, registers it's not just class and I don't think you could have just class I think that's always been my, what my work's about you can't just have class, it's got to be raced, it's got to be gendered, it's got to be sexualised, that's how it comes into existence and that's how it's lived um, so I want to end on that point but also saying even though I'm doing a, kind of a bit of a critique of gender which I always do I mean Mike's been subject to this for many years now um, and I will always continue to do is that whilst I make critiques of class and gender I want to also say that Mike has opened up lots of spaces for my gender colleagues to enter sociology to have these debates and to produce criticisms as well But I do think, and I want to end on, I think we're in absolutely crazy times at the moment when Boris Johnson says the elite are victims. Um, I'm like, wow. Um, You know, if this is what's happening when people with so much power uh, have just such a complete disregard for others who they are exploiting on a daily basis and abusing on a daily basis and the cruel conservatism that we see at the moment. I do think it's important to keep class on the agenda, but I'd like to nuance it differently. Thank you.
0: you very much indeed. I think I'll give Mike a chance to respond to any of that um, uh, as the discussion proceeds. Um, there are one or two people uh, leaving at the moment. Um, we'll have, we've got about 15-20 um, minutes um, for, uh, for, for discussion and questions. Um, I think I, what I'd like to do is to take um, comments and questions um, people would like to make, uh, probably in groups of three. Um, it might be helpful if you, um, however... Uh, world famous and eminent if you introduce yourself um, very briefly and if you could then also put your point I know I'm surrounded this is unusual for me I'm surrounded by sociologists if you would if you'd like to keep your comments relatively brief um, that will give um, that that will give a chance for for more of you to make a contribution and for Mike and Bev to give more of a response so um, who would like to um, start this off so um, first of all right at the back Uh.
1: Hi, I'm a student at LSC here hi i'm a student at LLC studying abroad from america i 'm a political science major not sociology at all i 'm going into business uh, I just came here because I thought the material was interesting and it is very interesting. Um, one question that I have concerns technology and automation um, If you look at trends that have happened recently we 've gotten a lot better at automating things, uh, making capital more valuable and making labor less valuable hence kind of organically driving down wages in addition to the kind of, I think, institutional factors that are involved there. Do you all see
0: this trend continuing and how do you see it playing out in the political spectrum as that kind of organic market force drives more automation? Um, and just at the frontier,
3: <clears throat> I'm afraid you can't get away from natural law and there are natural laws of sociology, let me tell you one. Um, <clears throat> uh, uh, most people, when they um, <clears throat> make friends with, do business with, and above all marry, they seek out someone that is clever and pleasant, as pleasant as they can. and. So that a pleasant man attracts business. He comes a little better off. And of course, once he's better off, he then attracts a wife that is also pleasant and clever. They marry, if they're uh, supposing they marry, then the children not only tend to inherit that cleverness and pleasantness. But also they are brought up by pleasant and clever parents. So inevitably you get a class distinction. The upper class are pleasant and clever, and the lower class are stupid and unpleasant. And that is a fact of life.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much for <laughs> that contribution.
2: Well members ahead?
0: of the audience while members of the audience think of think of counter-examples um, to the particular um, pleasantness and, and cleverness of members of the upper class. Um, could I bring in maybe for a slightly different point uh, the lady um, on this side, please? Thank you. Yes,
2: my name is Marilena Simiti. I'm a visiting fellow at LSC. I want to thank you for your analysis. My question is how do you incorporate in your analysis the intergenerational aspects of class, class reproduction, besides notions of stigma. Thank you very much.
1: Mike, I respond to all... um, I'll respond to various questions, I mean, some of the issues which Bev raised, and then some of the questions from the audience. Um, I mean, I, I, I have been in dialogue with Bev for 20-odd years, I guess. Um, and uh, I think it's. Uh, I th- I'm not. Sure. I think in some respects um, we have a lot of areas where we, where we agree. On the issue of Marx. Um, <laughs> I, I sympathise with with, 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 with Marxist theory, My, but I have one major problem. And um, I've put this to bed before, and I'll put it to her again. Uh, if you, if you believe in the labour theory of value, then that you have a theory of capitalism, and you have a theory of class, and it, I can absolutely see how you can talk about capital and labour and how you can plot that in terms of the dynamics of capital accumulation and also what that means in terms of class structure. Now I'm not an economist but my understanding is the labour theory of value is is difficult to defend in those terms today and it becomes difficult to know know, who is the productive labour and who is the unproductive labour and who who exactly is the capitalist. We all all have our pension, not all of us, many of us have pension funds and all and all all sorts of debates which do raise issues about how you institutionalise that in terms of class. That is actually why, I mean, I know Bourdieu's models of, of capitals can be criticised for being instrumentalist and, in a sense, taking a certain economistic logic, but I quite like the idea that you can think about mm. forms of accumulation um, as a mechanism, which, which is not incompatible with Marx, far from it. I mean, Marx, of course, is all about accumulation of capital, uh, but it allows you to give some kind of mechanism by which groups um, Augment their advantages, store store their advantages, and how they can transmit them to their to their friends, family, or whatever. So I, I, I see that that Bourdieu's motif as not inimical to a certain kind of Marxist perspective, but sidestepping the I think uh, rather thorny question of the, the labour theory of value. So I wouldn't say anything which I've said today is is inimical to to a Marxist perspective. But I suppose I I was question back at Bevan asking to say a bit more about how she sees labour and capital as an operational category today. If you're not going to get into Difficult debates. Um, and I think there's a question too which came up about technology and so forth. The whole issue, I mean, one of the contradictions with the Great British Class Survey is obviously it was, it was a national, mainly a national survey. Uh, and yet the issue of internationalisation is cru- of clearly a crucial feature of contemporary class relationships and how you try and map out um, class on a global scale. And obviously, in the, I, mean, I, would, I would not make the claim that we can talk about a national class structure as if it is some sort of autonomous uh social structure which is different from France or Germany. Clearly we live in a much more mobile and fluid world than that. Pragmatically, we had a survey which is predominantly filled in by people living in the UK and we had to work with that. But even there, even with the GBCS, you can see ways in which actually there are very strong internationalising forces at work. So for instance, um, those graduates of non-British universities, of which there are a lot, are um, actually more privileged in terms of their economic, cultural capital than not graduates from any other British university, including Oxford. So, in that respect, you can talk about perhaps the formation of a the international form of cosmopolitan cultural capital. Um, and this also intersects with the point about um, technology and so forth. I mean, so again, I I'll, I'll take those points, and I think that again makes the point that that old model of the problematic of the proletariat was very much making links between national political. Um, forces and the national class structure and recognising that labour is much more um, mobile between nations these days makes it much more difficult to think about those sorts of, those sorts of issues. Um, age, and gen- uh, age and gender, I mean, uh, one of the advantages I think of, I mean, I, we have been much criticised in a sense for our way of deriving class categories because they're inductive and in a sense they're taking measures of, qu- quite hybrid measures of economic, cultural, social capital and then trying to plot how class is an assemblage or crystallization of those. And in the process, of course, issues of age and gender are tied in with our our, um, definitions of class, or certainly our measures of class. And to me, that is positive. So it's not the case that you have a kind of class structure and then gender is a separate principle. I mean, they actually actually do overlap. But I think our way of approaching that um, gives you some handle there, particularly actually around the issue of age. And I do think it's very interesting that in Britain we haven't had a very serious debate about generational inequalities. As I understand it in France there's a much stronger richer tradition of thinking about generation as itself a divide and people like Louis Chavel have talked extensively about how younger people are being locked out by the generational privileges of older middle class. We haven't had that debate in Britain, instead we have this rather fatuous debate about social mobility. The declining social mobility when people don't understand how to measure it. Um, and we don't actually talk about issues of generation and quality. Again, one of the advantages, I think, of our way of thinking about class is, is age is very much in there. So the emerging service workers are a young class. They're actually absolutely a young group of young people with qualifications but who don't have good jobs. And so I think I would very much want to bring age into the equation. And... Um yeah, I got a It's fine. <laughs> <I'm reading
2: that. laughs> labour theory of value, how long have you got? Um, you
4: have
3: about I'd, two minutes.
2: I tell you what was very interesting, looking at the rich list in terms of labour theory of value, was that nearly, I think it was the, the top seven, obviously, um, and then the Duke of Westminster, it was all about inheritance or primitive accumulation. So really interesting that these people were all so wealthy through basic forms of exploitation and through basic forms of inheritance. Now, so I'd always argue that the labour theory of value is significant in terms of inheritance and accumulation, but we have to work out how, and I do think it's quite different. There's an argument being made recently that um, technology is a new form, a new mode of production. I think that's quite significant. Um, was predicted kind of in Grundrisse but there was a bit too much romanticisation there but it is very interesting how um, new forms of technology get people to labour for free and I think that kind of Judy would, would kind of um, add complications into that. I do think generation is very very important. I do think inheritance is incredibly important and it can, kind of gets lost from a lot of debates. If we got rid of inheritance laws we'd get rid of a huge amount of um, class disparity and inequality.
0: Right. Uh, let's take another round of comments,
4: please. So. Yes, uh, I just, uh, my name's Phil Hall. I'm an alumni of this august institution. I just came in to use the library and uh, I've stumbled across this talk. Um, I, I would just like to make two points um, about uh, Mike's contribution, which I enjoyed. But I feel that uh, when you talk about the elite, then as I think as Bev is saying... Uh, really, you, you're missing out on the centrality of capital, although you mention it now and then, and that a lot of people who uh, live from capital um, may have no occupation at all. Or if they do have an occupation, uh, the bulk of their income may come from capital. And therefore, you seem to be, sort of, have a whole range of uh, criteria but somehow capital doesn't seem to be part of it. And the second point I'd like to make briefly is that the question of class must involve, I think, to have any meaning, if you have any reference to Marx, the notion of class conflict. And that this country was uh, visited by a a very significant element of it in the 1980s and that uh, the late uh, Lady Thatcher was indeed a class warrior for her class and broke the trade unions. And that's one of the reasons why there is growing inequality, because there aren't strong trade unions to represent people. And so I feel that a lot of these categorizations, in a sense, are
0: interesting,
4: but seem to kind of lose the central dynamic of our society.
0: And then there's a lady about halfway back, just on the other side of the aisle.
2: Um, I wanted to know how the survey, or if the survey accounted for social mobility as well, as in whether the respondents, like I don't know, whether it asked them like what their parents' income was when they were younger and what they're doing now. And then also, I wanted to know your the different categories, or especially the elite jobs. There seem to be jobs that one could work your, you could work yourself up to that, like you you know through hard work and labor, you could probably get it. Job as an HR manager, and whether you think that, what do you think? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe essentially, whether you think like social mobility has become more accessible, or if it is accessible at all. Okay. And then- uh, hi there, uh, my name's Rachel, I'm a student here um, studying social policy. My question's about the class that I was placed in when I did the survey, um, which was this, no money but lots of capital. I'd agree with that, I'm paying fees here, I've got no money, and I do have the capital apparently that you th- you, your survey said I did. Um, my question is about the transience and mobility of that class as the future, arguably the future of, of the UK, how far do you think that cast can move? Because I assume that will be the cast that is going to move. I hope so. I hope I have some money when I'm older.
1: <laughs> um. <clears throat> Interesting questions. I mean, I think we, this, is, this is a cross-sectional survey, so we don't know. Obviously, we don't know what will happen in the future, That's all I can say. And we, you know, we, we also don't know what the trajectories are of people in these positions and how they were 10 years before, and things like that. So it's just speculation, really. And so one... one uh, quite plausible scenario would be that there always has been a lot of social mobility of uh, people doing their work life, doing their careers, starting in fairly junior jobs and working their way up and the evidence for declining social mobility is at least best partial, although the idea is trumpeted a lot, actually there continues to be a lot of upward social mobility doing people's work lives and so there is a good chance, I would imagine that the emerging service workers or their equivalents do in fact end up in different kinds of classes Um, And we we can't tell that from the survey, I think, all week, but that's that's perfectly feasible. On social mobility itself, and um, we do have questions about the social class of parents, and we can begin to do a bit of work about the issue of um, generational reproduction. And it shows what what you'd expect, that is to say, if you take this elite class, I haven't got the figures in front of me, but I think 80% of the people in our survey who were in that class came from backgrounds which were senior management or professional. I think it's, I think it's right. Um, a lot. Um, but I think it's also right to say, and this goes to my point about, you know, we need to rethink what this, this corporate elite actually is, that we're not talking about a kind of completely closed class, which is is described. I mean, yeah, absolutely, you, you can be happily mobile, mobile, including the fact, particularly actually if you look at um, the business elite fraction quite a significant portion of those have not been to university at all they haven't got a higher education they have indeed and has earned their way up the hard way and I think that is really important that we, get, we move away from this old notion of the ascribed um, elite and the final issue about capital I mean I, I think that's exactly the debate we should be having focusing upon the top grouping in society and thinking about well can we identify a group of distinctive capitalists as opposed to kind of man- you know, more senior managers and, and reflect upon this so I'm not I mean I'm not at all inimical to the idea that actually yes and indeed, I mean, the wealth list shows it all too well. I mean, there are this very group, this group of powerful rentier capitalist classes, and they're very the part of, and I mean, John's work shows this too. I mean, absolutely, I, I wouldn't be arguing against that at all. In fact, in a sense, my whole argument is to say, let's think about that issue, let's look at what's happening at the top of society, and not focus on the kind of boundary between middle and working class, which has been the cornerstone of debate for so long. So I'm, I'm quite open to that, that perspective.
2: I was just going to say, it's interesting if we lose the kind of the conflict between the the working class and the middle class, because I think all my research on the working class is how much the middle class enjoy um, putting them down um, and kind of, you know, describing them as useless, pointless, tasteless, vulgar, all of that sort of stuff. And usually it's those who are the most proximate that feel, often through anxiety and fear, that they have to do this so that they can mark their distance from them. So I kind of think, if we're looking at the cultural politics of class, we have to look at the moral devaluations that go on. So something like the word "chav" has been really interesting. You know, it's been taken up with an absolute delight by the middle classes to draw distance from that which they most fear they may become. Now, in terms of social mobility, that's going to be really, really interesting because the property market is it bubbles and collapses and uh, middle class kids aren't going to be able to inherit as much and they're not going to be funded in the same way. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens and you can understand I think David Garland's criminological work is very interesting on this. You can understand the fears of the middle class that they are probably falling. They always think they're falling even when they're not but they probably will be falling so I don't want to lose that politics, that moral politics which has been so vindictive been so, so horrific <laughs> can't get the word right um, uh, on, on um, working class women especially single parents and if you want to kind of if we lose that we lose some of the dynamic and some of the politics by which we can also challenge it
0: Thank you very much I think maybe we've got time for one more comment and uh, the gentleman in the middle of the row here has been trying to get in for a little while and then I think I'll have to draw it to a close so uh, this side yes that's you Elite, as you called
1: them, as um, as, as knowing
0: as, as knowing capitalists. Is that correct? I mean, yeah, could the, I could I suggest to you that the 19th century gentlemen were also a formation that exhibited uh, a knowing a knowingness about capitalism, and that indeed was their purpose. And so, in fact, there's very little difference. We're talking about you know different forms of class domination. You're you're taking uh, certain you know, superficial developments of the present and and, and completely exaggerating their significance as a historian I think that's very lamentable and particularly you know given you cite T.P. Thompson
1: <laughs> I mean I'm, I'm, <laughs> that reference to knowing capitalism is really, it's really a reference to Nigel Swift's work you know, and his argument that capitalism now depends upon the recursivity of knowledge in a way that, you know didn't used to be the case where um, knowledge was seen to be kind of more peripheral to the kind of handicraft and nature of production I mean it, to be sure, gentlemen of capitalists of the 19th century were, were knowing, knowing what they were doing, but I do think the circuits of knowledge are more complex in the way in which information, uh, the construction information, databases, and all those things play into expertise and management is, 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 a, is more profound than used to be the case. That's what
0: they'd like to tell us. I'm afraid we're out of time, um, but um, please join us to carry on the discussion in a reception outside. Um, Could I, before you all leave, just thank you all for being here. Those of you with emerging cultural capital could have been doing lots of other things um, on (laughs) Facebook, at the Jazz Festival, um, or at your Zumba class. Uh, Could you please join me in thanking, first of all,
1: Bev (laughs) for